Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to Agrac. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I have back with me the one and only Dr. Kara Esser, who was recently on the show for her first time and now is back because she did such a great job. She's back by popular demand to do another episode, and we're going to do another neuroanesthesia episode because that's her area of expertise. We're going to talk about anesthesia for transphenoidal pituitary resection. So, Kara, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Jed. I'm so happy that I'm able to come back again. So tell us, uh, we heard last time about you and your interest in neuroanesthesia, so let's jump right into the topic. Mm -hmm. What is transphenoidal pituitary surgery? Okay, great. Yeah, so I'm I'm definitely excited to talk about this endoscopic endonasal pituitary surgery that we commonly see here at Hopkins. Um, We're going to talk about preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative concerns. So this type of procedure has really evolved over the past couple of decades, has become less stressful and less invasive compared to previous approaches. Excuse me. Due to the diversity of lesions that can affect the pituitary and the skull-based region, perioperative care should be tailored to each individual patient. You want to look at their medical history, the lesion characteristics, functional status, and endocrine function. So as many as seven, one in seven people have a pituitary tumor. However, only one in 1,000 are clinically symptomatic from that tumor. So this type of procedure is performed through the patient's nasal cavity uh, to reach the base of the pituitary gland, and the skull base is removed to gain access to the tumor. Okay. And so what is the right term? Is it transphenoidal? Is it endonasal? Is it all of the above? What, like, what do you actually call this? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of all of the above. So the regular term that I kind of go by is transphenoidal endoscopic endonasal skull-based procedure, or you can call it a pituitary procedure because basically they're going to access the pituitary. But occasionally the tumors are so large that it kind of goes into other cavities. So it's, that's why they encompass skull-based procedure as well. And these are done only by neurosurgeons? Is ENT involved in these at all? Yes. So it's a combination of neurosurgery as well as ENT because ENT helps uh, neurosurgery to gain access to the tumor and then neurosurgery does all the dissection of the tumor. Great. All right. So this is a multidisciplinary approach. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about intraoperatively. What are you thinking about? What's going on intraoperatively with these cases? Okay. Uh, I just want to jump back real quick to talk about some of the common tumors that you can yeah, see. Yeah, oh, please do. Sure. So the most common presenting tumors of pituitary gland are prolactin-secreting microadenomas, or you can have non-secreting macroadenomas. So prolactin-secreting present with amenorrhea or galactorrhea or both. 
And then non-secreting adenomas manifest as, as mass effects, so they can develop headaches, visual disturbances, hypopituitarism, and are typically larger at time of diagnosis. The other less, uh, three less common presenting secreting pituitary tumors are growth hormone secreting, which can lead to acromegaly, ACTH secreting, which can cause Cushing disease, and then rarely thyroid stimulating hormone, which can cause hyperthyroidism. And that's obviously important to know because you yeah. want to, those can have effects on your anesthetic. So yes, if it's uh, a secreting tumor, you want to be aware of that. Yeah. So all of the preoperatively, you want to know what type of tumor it is. So you want to be able to evaluate these patients, check on their endocrine status, as well as their visual status. Um, so with Cushing disease patients, they can have hypertension, diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, central obesity, which can all cause complications with your anesthetic management. With acromegaly, these patients can, um, can be difficult airways with large tongues and narrowed glottis, as well as development of hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea, and cardiomyopathy. So these tumors all should be reviewed with imaging to evaluate any impingement of the optic chiasm and any extension to cavernous sinuses or presence of hydrocephalus in these patients. So obviously, if these patients have increased intracranial pressure because of hydrocephalus, that should be managed prior to going surgery. And then the endocrine workup should be reviewed so that the patients are euthyroid before surgery. And then also, um, if they have any hyponatremia, which can um, result due to severe adrenal insufficiency, uh, this should be uh, treated beforehand as well. Okay, so intraoperative management. Standard ASA monitors you're going to have, you're going to have a 5-lead EKG, pulse ox, non-invasive blood pressure cuff, capnography, temperature, plus an arterial line for close hemodynamic monitoring. These patients will, you'll place an OG tube in order to suction out at the end of the case because all of the fluids and the blood that trickles down, you want to make sure that that's suctioned out at the end. The patient's placed in Mayfield pins for proper positioning and stabilization. Um, here at Hopkins, they commonly utilize ceftriaxone for antibiotic therapy. And then the anesthetic goals for transphenoidal surgery include hemodynamic stability, sufficient cerebral oxygenation, facilitating sur surgical exposure with management of blood pressure parameters, as well as muscle paralysis and allowing for a rapid and smooth emergence. <clears throat> Induced hypotension is often utilized to decrease the risk of increased blood loss and optimize surgical conditions. So, however, patients' mean arterial pressure should be kept around 65 to ensure adequate cerebral perfusion, particularly since these patients are often in a semi-head-up position. So are you going to put your A-line transducer at the level of the circle of Willis? Yes. Yes. Um, controlled hypotension should be avoided in patients with coronary artery disease or advanced cardiac disease, chronic kidney and liver disease, and a history of cerebral vascular disease. And Kara, how about a patient who starts at a, you know, the chronic hypertensive, they're mm -hmm. at a blood pressure, they come in at a blood pressure of, you know, 190 over mm -hmm. 100. You know, is that a patient, if the surgeon says, let's let's get a map of 65, are you going to say, eh, maybe not quite? Yeah. We'll usually most often cancel the case or delay it for a later time and have the patient um, have their blood pressure better controlled prior to coming for surgery. And that's happened uh, multiple times. Okay. Okay. Um, Interoperatively continued, so both intravenous and volatile agents can be used as anesthetic maintenance in this type of procedure. Because of the quick end to the procedure, short-acting agents such as propofol and sevoflurane have been preferred, but studies have not been conclusive in finding a superiority in one anesthetic technique compared to another. Um, so one study that I was reading about by Kim et al. compared the difference of inhalational versus total intravenous anesthesia on the quality of recovery in this patient population. 
So results showed time to verbal response and time to extubation were shorter in the inhalational group compared to the TIVA group, but the TIVA group had a lower incidence of agitation with emergence and a lower grade of cough, which is very important in this type of procedure. And then interoperatively, the inhalational group had higher MAPs and heart rates compared to the TIVA group, and better um, anti-emetic effects were seen in the PACU with the TIVA group, as well as lower maximal pain scores compared to the inhalational group. So just something to think about with some studies that they've seen. Obviously, like I said, no um, study has shown which which anesthetic technique is superior, um, and everybody utilizes a different uh, management. Additionally, um, I know with my management, I'll commonly use dexmedetomidine. Um, it's really helpful to maintain hemodynamic stability and additionally decrease anesthetic requirements up to 30 to 40%. Studies have extensively shown its minimal effects on respiratory depression, potentiation of opioid analgesia, dose-dependent sedation and anxiolysis, as well as antipsychotic and sympatholytic properties. Do you run it as an infusion or do you give intermittent boluses? How do you do it? So um, I'll do it differently for different cases, depending if I have a very young patient, I'll do an infusion. Um, and then if it's just an older patient, I'll commonly just do a bolus near the end. So I have kind of a smoother wake up. Great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we use this a lot in the ICU, obviously. Important for people to know that if you're going to run it as an infusion, this is dosed as mics per kilo per, per hour, not mics per kilo per minute. It's like the only one that's that, the only medication I know that that's dosed that way. Mm-hmm. And then we usually use it in the ICU anywhere from 0.2 up to a max of 1.5 mics per kilo per hour. When you run it as an infusion, you know, again, and we're not giving medical advice, you should obviously use whatever your institution's recommendation is, but care more or less what, what dose range are you in? Yeah, so I usually uh, run it between 0.2 to 0.3 up to 0.5 mics per kg per hour. Great. And if you're going to bolus, what do you, kind of bolus do you give in terms of mics per kilo? Yeah, so I actually don't necessarily... I mean, depending on the patient's weight, because especially if the patient has like Cushing's, they might be obese. I might not necessarily go off the weight, but it's usually around half mic per kilo. Um, that or I'll just give like 20 to 30 mics when there's about 20 to 30 minutes left in the case. And I've really seen a, a difference with how these patients emerge. Great. Yeah, I've always taught that anything up to and including a half mic per kilo is very safe. I think once you get closer to a mic per kilo, you can see some pretty significant uh, hemodynamic effects from that kind of a bolus. But I think up to half a mic per kilo is usually pretty good. You always want to watch your hemodynamics, obviously, but I think you're pretty safe in that range. Yeah, definitely you'll see that initial hypertensive response and then bradycardia. I actually, the the other day, I had a significant bradycardia in this young patient that went down to like 20s, 30s, and I had actually never seen it go that low before. So That's it was interesting. Solid. Yeah. So be ready. Yes. <laughs> be aware. Be aware. Um, all right. So use uh, dexmedetomidine sometimes. I wanted to ask you, you um, mentioned that with uh, TIVA, you sometimes can see, or at least studies have shown, a lower grade of cough, and you said that was important. I'm guessing that's because you really don't want these patients to to cough in a way that would increase their intracranial pressure immediately after this surgery because of risk of bleeding and and things like that? Yes. So um, what's very important for this type of procedure is the emergence. Um, So you don't want them coughing or bucking um, on the the endotracheal tube because it can disrupt the nasal cavity of, of their skull base of where they just um, did the surgery. So the, I would say that's probably the most challenging portion of the endoscopic endonasal procedure. 
Um, so there's not really too much closure time for you to kind of prepare for emergence. So um, people have to really pay close attention to the surgical procedure to make sure they know when that point is coming. I mean, a lot of times our surgeons are very good at notifying us that there's not too much time left, um, but it's also important to pay attention and make sure you know where, where the surgery is actually at. Um, so it's also just like any type of surgical procedure, it's important to get the patient spontaneously breathing with hemodynamic stability. It's important to keep the patient kind of deeply sedated to allow for removal of the Mayfield pins, um, as well as suction out the patient's OG tube for any blood or fluids to help decrease the risk of aspiration as well as irritation causing any coughing and bucking on emergence. Um, so this is often challenging because if the patient starts coughing and bucking, it can lead to hemorrhage, CSF leakage, pneumocephalus, disruption of the newly repaired skull base, or dislodgement of nasal packing. So a meticulous anesthetic plan is important to ensure this type um, time interval is very smooth. I find that um, actually if you do a very good preoperative counseling of the patient before going into surgery, that you want a smooth wake up and we're going to be talking to you, try not to cough, um, breathe through your mouth. It's of utmost importance and I feel like it really helps them mentally prepare for it. Great. And this is unlike, you know, sometimes with thyroids or parathyroids, we may actually extubate deep to prevent the gagging and coughing. You can't really extubate deep when you're in pins and paralyzed. I guess you could wait until you're out of pins and then try mm -hmm. to extubate deep. Do you ever do that or no? No. So often deep extubation is avoided due to the increased risk of post-extubation laryngospasm and then probable need of airway support by the anesthesiologist. However, this is not really helpful because you don't want to provide positive pressure to the patients because this can disrupt the um, skull base as well. So basically everything they just did in the surgery. Great. So when we think about emergence, you, you mentioned avoiding the coughing and all that. Other things we want to keep in mind around emergence? Um, yeah. So other things to keep in mind is um, I've also found that um, with acromegalic patients and Cushing's disease patients, they're at increased risk of airway obstruction postoperatively because of the hypertrophy of soft tissue and obesity. So that's another reason to ensure full return of airway reflexes prior to extubation. Um, I found that remifentanil has been very successful in demonstrating suppression of the cough reflex in these types of surgeries to help with a smooth emergence. So even a low dose, remifentanil helps to dull the tracheal response to promote this smooth transition. So data shows the effective concentration of remifentanil to help with blunting the trigger response is 0.05 to 0.1 mics per kg per minute. Uh, it's been shown to allow for faster recovery times when compared to volatile anesthetics alone, and remifentanil provides hemodynamic stability and allows for rapid recovery, whether it's combined with propofol or with a volatile agent. Yeah, it's always, I love the remi wake-ups, right, because they're the ones where a patient can be, they look completely anesthetized, and then you just say their name, they open their eyes, you tell them to breathe, they breathe, right? So it's just, if you do it right, it can be very, very smooth. Yes, I, I love that. I feel like when I combine Remy with the Presidex, that's kind of how it goes. And it's just, it's an amazing wake up. Yeah, that's great. And it sounds like it's really important in these cases specifically. Yes. Great. All right. So we're kind of hit this really crucial portion of the emergence and we've done it well using the variety of techniques you've laid out. Now, what are our really important goals we need to think about postoperatively? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor and my daughter, my oldest daughter looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. 
Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back with Dr. Kara Esser. So postoperatively, lots of different things to consider, whether it's surgical and anesthetic. So those patients are most often admitted to an ICU or high-dependency unit for close monitoring. Uh, They want to monitor respirations, visual acuity, urine output, blood pressure, level of consciousness, sodium level, and any signs of epistaxis or CSF leak that uh, needs to be watched for closely. So most common adverse events following transvenoidal surgery are CSF leak, epistaxis, hyponatremia, and hypopituitarism. Uh, Some of the most feared and disastrous complication during endoscopic pituitary surgery is carotid artery injury. Very uncommon, but it's still a possibility. So if it does occur, it could be a potential cause of intraoperative mortality. So mild oozing of blood is common, um, and it's usually self-limiting with one to two days. So just something that they have to watch out for. Um, pain management and diminishing postoperative nausea and vomiting is important for every type of surgical case, but particularly important for this type of surgery to prevent any um, vomiting or retching or coughing on extubation as well as afterwards so that you're not disrupting the repaired skull base. Intraoperative use of acetaminophen has helped with reduction in opioid use, um, helping to decrease the risk of apnea for emergence and postoperatively. So scheduled amenities acetaminophen at intervals after surgery is helpful as well. So basically a multimodal analgesic approach is important so that you don't over-narcotize a patient, causing periods of apnea or causing worsening PONB. Dexmedetomidine, like we talked about earlier, is an excellent adjunct. It can help provide analgesia, decrease opioid requirements, um, helps provide hemodynamic stability, and decrease postoperative pain scores and PONB. Um, PONB has been shown to be decreased with the use of TIVA as well as with 
prophylactic medications like um, Zofran and intravenous dexamethasone. Uh, so the most common complaint after these types of surgeries is headache. Fentanyl has been shown to have less side effects like nausea and vomiting and a lower incidence of respiratory depression when compared to um, use of like morphine previously. Even though pituitary surgery is much less invasive compared to other types of surgeries, patient-controlled analgesia or PCA has gained popularity since it allows a patient to have a smoother post-operative experience and can decide for themselves when they need a dose of medication. Hypopituitarism frequently occurs after transmonodal surgery, especially in patients with large or invasive lesions. So replacement of pituitary hormones is crucial and discussion of the possible need for replacement should begin preoperatively to prepare the patient for possible need of lifelong hormone replacement therapy. So after this type of surgery, these patients have a persistent bony defect. Um, so nasal intubation and placement of nasogastric tube is contraindicated for at least 14 days. Occasionally, surgeons resort to an autologous fat graft that they might take from the patient's abdomen um, to repack the operative defect. So there's a strong association that's been found with increased incidence of diabetes insipidus with intraoperative CSF fluid leak. Uh, so these particular patients undergoing surgery are at higher risk for sleep apnea postoperatively and need to be carefully monitored. But CPAP is contraindicated because it can lead to tension pneumocephalus. This is why return of airway reflexes in an awake patient are important for extubation. So they should be closely monitored over the next 24 hours with special attention, like we said, to respirations, hemodynamic parameters, and neurological status. Um, so with regard to actually the surgery and neurosurgeons, a neurological exam after the surgery is vital. So they'll do visual field testing to evaluate for any changes in vision. Um, this will often include visual acuity, extraocular movement, and sensation to the forehead and infraorbital cheek regions. They also want to monitor serum sodium and urine-specific gravity. So those should be checked every six hours as well as serum cortisol daily during their hospital stay. This should also include patients' daily weights using the same scale and at the same time of day to monitor for fluid retention. And oral fluid intake should be restricted to one liter per day to prevent um, syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion. So if there's any new changes um, or deterioration with vision with new onset diplopia, corticosteroids can be given to help diminish neuronal swelling and emergency CT or MRI should be performed to evaluate for hematoma or other abnormalities. Vision field, visual field checks should be done about three to four times a day to monitor any new visual field deficits, which could indicate a postoperative hemorrhage, but additionally to monitor for improvement of symptoms preoperatively. All right, so now we're just going to talk about some common side effects after this type of procedure. So diabetes insipidus is fairly common following transmenorrhal surgery, but it's usually transient and resolves within days. But the incidence is as high as 16.6%. So symptoms include abrupt onset of polyuria with increased thirst and polydipsia. Treatment is considered when there's increasing sodium or a large difference in intake and output. So initial treatment includes replacement of fluid losses with isotonic fluids, and then later hypotonic fluids if urine output continues to be increased. Mild diabetes insipidus can occasionally be treated with carbamazepine, chlorpropamide, or clofibrate. Definitive treatment of DI is a synthetic analog antidiuretic hormone, which is desmopressin or DDAVP. Usually only one dose is needed since DI is transient and desmopressin works very quickly and successfully. 
Early intervention for DI is important since it can lead to dehydration and hypernatremia, creating a huge fluid deficit and imbalance. It does need to be differentiated from other causes of polyuria, such as large amount of intraoperative fluid administration, erysomatic diuresis intraoperatively, sometimes um, utilize mannitol at the end of the case to help with um, decreasing swelling around the tumor that they had removed. Uh, DI is thought to result from surgical manipulation of the pituitary stalk and disruption of arginine vasopressin. Yeah, and I'll just emphasize what you said, which is that it happens from time to time. And I don't really take care of the neuro ICU patients, but even in our regular general surgical ICU patients, where they'll be making a lot of urine and people will bring up DI. And of course, you can look at their specific gravity, you can look at their sodium and their um, osmols. But you can also look, as you said, if they got five liters of fluid, they were positive five liters of fluid the day of surgery, and now they're, you know, making a lot of urine, that probably just means they got good kidneys, right? And it's really only if they're making themselves negative overall. Even then, sometimes people come in volume overloaded. But for the most part, that's when I start to think, is something going on? If they're actively making themselves more negative every, you know, more negative than they even started with. But if a patient got a ton of extra volume and now they're putting out a lot of urine more than most people, it probably just means they have better kidneys than most people. Not that you shouldn't think about DI, but, and especially in these patients that you're talking about, because it's such a high risk, you always want to be thinking about it. But remember, if people, if patients get a lot of, a lot of fluid and they have good kidneys, they're going to make a lot of urine. Totally agree with that. Um, all right, next, diabetes insipidus needs to be differentiated from syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone, as well as other disorders of water balance commonly encountered postoperatively, especially in pituitary patients. So hyponatremia can be due to SIADH, cerebral salt wasting, or hypocortisolism. So three main differences between DI and SIADH is the sodium level, serum osmolarity, and urine volume. DI has an increase in sodium level, hypertonic osmolarity, and a large amount of urine output. SIADH has decreasing sodium levels, mainly due to dilution with retained water, as well as excretion of sodium in urine, hypotonic osmolarity, and low urine output. And then SIADH needs to be distinguished from other causes of hyponatremia, such as cerebral salt wasting, which is due to volume contraction. SIADH treatment includes fluid restriction, and with very low sodium levels, hypertonic saline can be given to help restore sodium stores. Rapid correction of sodium levels avoided, however, to prevent central pontine myelinosis. And then euvolemic hyponatremia may result from SIADH, while hypovolemic hyponatremia is caused by cerebral salt wasting. Great. All right. So definitely one thing that comes up a lot is that uh, DI versus cerebral salt wasting. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, as you've said, diabetes insipidus, you're going to actually have hypernatremia mm -hmm. because you're losing free water, whereas cerebral salt wasting, you're wasting salt, you're going to have hyponatremia. So I think that's, in my mind, that's the biggest differentiator. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Great. All right. So that's that's basically all I have um, for postoperative management. So to wrap it up, I mean, everything that's most important for this type of procedure is the emergence. Um, but then also you want to preoperatively, you want to make sure the patient's optimized, whether it's hemodynamically, um, it's with their any secreting tumors that they might have. So endocrinologically, they need to be optimized prior to surgery. And then you need to have a close anesthetic plan to make sure that you're going to have a, a smooth emergence for these patients. Great. And then we mentioned earlier, I think, but patients who are on a lot of steroids um, preoperatively for any reason, you need to think about it. There's always debate about this, right? Like, do you stress dose people? If so, how much? You know, I, I think the general consensus is if a patient is on 20 milligrams of prednisone or more daily or the equivalent, that's the patient that you would potentially stress dose. 
Um, even then, you know, I think there's a lot of debate about how important it is or effective. I, in, in my mind, what I always tell our residents is, if you have a patient who's on steroids at home or you have any reason to think might be adrenally insufficient, at the very least have the steroids in the room ready so that if you have, and think about it. So if you have unexpected hypotension that's refractory to your normal pressors, be very quick to go towards a stress dose of steroids. Yes, I would agree with that. And usually there's always um, endocrinology recommendations uh, prior to surgery, especially if these patients are on steroids. And then according to the U.S. Endocrine Society recommendation, they include that 25 to 75 milligrams of hydrocortisone in surgical procedures that are minor to moderate stress should be given. And then major surgical stress, they should receive 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone to help prevent any type of adrenal crisis. Great. All right, Kara, this has been a fantastic review of a really important surgery and uh, really where our management is crucial. Um, anything to add before we move on? Uh, no, I think that's it. All right, well, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something fun to recommend to the audience? Yeah, so I have a, a good movie to recommend to the audience, something that just recently came out. It's Super Mario Brothers cartoon. It's very entertaining, so if you have kids, definitely entertaining to take them to. Yes, I took my all three of mine, including my five-year-old, and I'll say she, the five-year-old, has a hard time sitting through a movie, but this time she did. It was entertaining enough even for her. And the fun thing is, you know, for me, I grew up playing the original Nintendo Super Mario Brothers. And so while the movie, you know, was definitely geared more toward kids, the references to the original game was a ton of fun, mm -hmm. even for me. So, yeah, I totally agree, because I, I used to love playing regular Nintendo, then Super Nintendo, and yeah, good times. Yep, totally agree. Uh, <laughs> Super Mario Brothers the movie. And then um, I'll uh, recommend a TV show. If you haven't watched Succession, the final season is happening right now. It's on HBO, and it's... Um, it's an unusual show. It's it's very dark at times, uh, but it's really well done. The acting is probably the biggest highlight. The acting is incredible, and it's coming to a close this season. If you haven't watched it at all, you could binge all, I think, four. I think this is the fourth and final season. I'm not sure if that's right. It might be fifth. I can't remember. But whatever season it is is the final one. And Succession has been uh, fun to watch. We're, uh, we're looking forward to seeing how they bring it all to a close. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show, Kara. Thanks so much, Jed. Appreciate it. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. 
That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.